I, I honestly, every time one of the 300 million presidential candidates announced, I always go to Carl's Twitter to see his feedback on their logo. <laughs> He's um, like, I just, I just know in that morning you're gonna get like, you're gonna get the poster yeah. of whatever the, the 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 you know the, the campaign sign is, and he'll, he'll just be like, they're trying to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, what is that? What it? What is even is, is this supposed to be? Is that a wave? What is that? A wave? Like is that supposed they... to be the? You just see something a retweet, and it just says. Is that supposed to be the sun? What is that? <laughs> I just also love how they've escalated because I think as the race becomes more crowded, the d- graphic design does get worse. And you had one that was just like, fuck you. All caps. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah. It's yeah, bad. Carl's not having it. He's not having He's not standing for a bunch of bullshit. And then he just like creates the best logo of them all in like, like five seconds. Just, yeah, and like 10 minutes later, he's like, why don't you just do this? Yeah. And everybody's like, well, I should have yeah. done that. <clears throat> yeah. Well, here we go, folks. <laughs> Speaking of Wilmington being the greatest of them all, <clears throat> we're here again in the bunker, and uh, we always say it's in the shadow of Rockford Tower, which it is. But today, we have a uh, very special guest here, uh, activist, author, and neighborhood native, Sarah McBride. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here in the sort of Highlands bunker. Yes. Well, what I wanted to note is I would not have 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 brought your book out, which I've read. But if you if you turn to the the back uh, jacket, when you when you look at the photo here in the background is Rockford Tower. That is true. So I just want to I just want to point out that apparently you had the bunker mindset before there was a bunker mindset. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm the original Highlands bunker. I, it's right there. It's just proof positive. There we go. Well done. Good photo by Highlands native Barbara Proud. Oh, nice. Very nice. Barbara Proud shout out. I like that. So I've been trying to come down today. There was a uh, a big, big football match. I don't know if you guys follow the soccer from from Europe. Um, It was a good day for me personally. Is that the Liverpool or the Spurs? Ah, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm locking Rob's heart right now. I was in... England in December and went to my first football game. Where? I think it's is. Do the Spurs play? Well, the Spurs play when you went. Probably played at Wembley. They played yes. at the National Stadium. We were at, we were at Wembley. Yes, they have a new. They have actually a new regular home ground, but Wembley is the National Stadium, so that's actually kind of cool that you were there. I've it was never, a very cool there. experience. Yeah, mm, the culture See? is just like crazy. Yes, yes. I have never been to a sporting event, and I mm. don't go to many. I have never been to a sporting event that passionate and exciting. Word. <laughs> uh, so, uh, just so everybody knows, uh, Liverpool did win yesterday. Incredible, miracle win. They've they've beaten Barcelona, and the wonderful, glory glory Tottenham Hotspur uh, have also won today. They've beaten Ajax in Amsterdam, and uh, Liverpool and Tottenham Hotspur will play for the European Cup on the first of June. And if if I get my way, I will be in Madrid. <laughs> so wow! We, so we'll see. It's a big day for England between yeah. those and the naming of Archie. The Archie! Cor- oh, son of... <laughs> Mountbatten, Windsor. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Listen, you can't be in the Highlands and not talk about the royal family. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you said that. Because the, the, the first thing I want to talk about is just the, the book in general, which, um, I mean, it's, it's powerful stuff. Um, What's it called? It's there's no there's no uh, uh, camera here, but I will hold it up. <laughs> Tomorrow will be different. Love, loss, and the fight for trans equality. Sarah McBride, she's here. It's an author here in the bunker. It's incredible. Um, but no, it's 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 so profound. Thank uh, you. To, to be perfectly honest with you, like someone like me who thinks about these issues, um, whether they be LGBT. TQ issues or racial issues and never having to sort of face that out in the world um, and and then seeing somebody who was able to face it and write about it do activism about it and then live it 
it's actually in incredibly moving to me. Well, that that means a lot. And, you know, for me, I'm very lucky. And I talk about this, obviously, a lot in the book. I'm very lucky to have the experiences and the journey that I've had that's allowed me to survive and have the opportunities to share my story. And I think it's, you know, it's difficult to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, but it's through stories that we can hopefully bring people in and, and educate them a little bit more about the fuller diversity of humanity and the challenges people face that have challenges that are different than their own. Yeah, it's an uphill battle. Uh, I just saw today, I was on the bus coming home, get a, some sort of a news alert, go to the news. Google tells you what you want to read. So it knew, it knew that I would be upset about this. But there was some poll that like 50% of white Americans are uncomfortable or angry when they hear uh, a foreign language being spoken. And I just looked at it and I'm like, Jesus Christ, we got a lot of work to do. It's it's not good. Wait, what's the qualification? Fifty percent of Americans are white. White Americans. White no, the worst kind. The white Americans. I I understand that. Well, it always it always baffles me that people can look at this moment and think that race isn't an incredibly profound and if not primary, one of the primary drivers of our politics. Um, when Every single chapter in the history books races the predominant driver of political events and political opinion. And why on earth would we be any different in this moment? Suddenly race didn't disappear. Racism didn't disappear. And if our politics is any indication, there's there's certainly been at least uh, a receding of, of some of the progress that we were able to make in the last decade or so on a number of these issues. Um, but I don't know how anyone can look at our politics right now and not say, yeah, races, racism and white supremacy is at the center of the vast majority of the issues that we're facing. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that to me. I try to draw the line from, you know, all the way from slavery, because I think the argument you see all the time is that, well, this is over. You know, once once the law says something or once there's some sort of codified uh, sort of band-aid put on something everybody says well that's over but you look at the progression from you know Jim Crow to uh, redlining mm -hmm. to uh, mass incarceration just right up through what the cops do today you can go on the internet and watch three or four videos a day of just some of the most disgusting stuff you'd ever want to see and as people don't they, they, they it's very difficult for them to make the connection between 150 years ago and today but uh, there was an, there was a, an article just came out in the news journal today about um, the life expectancy for people who live say on the east side of Wilmington it's 20 years less because we just left people to you know we didn't do anything for them but people don't they don't look at it that way once once one obvious thing is over they just try to move on sort of thing well one of my favorite writers tim weiss talks about sort of racism 2.0 and that after hundreds of years of race being a driving factor of the way our institutions are structured and the way our policies are structured that for racism and and discrimination against folks of color to perpetuate it doesn't require even active movement, it requires just complete passive nature that allows those institutions and those policies to persist and maintain. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say, I, I think that makes things difficult for two reasons, right? I think on one hand, because the way like history and continuity works, these systems are really insidious and happen in place. And so I think like Rob was mentioning, you go from one phenomenon to another phenomenon and that oppression still continues. Um, and because there's that insidious history of it, there's also no one thing to blame. Mm -hmm. And I think people have difficulty talking about race and racism because they, if they hold some sort of privilege, don't want to think of themselves as culpable. It's like, well, like, I can't be racist because I don't do, like, X, Y, Z, like, very violent or, like, um, I guess, like, explicitly brutal thing, perhaps. But even so, like, just like you said, like, just complicity, essentially, or, or like, inaction still doesn't combat that force because it's been in place and has been going on for centuries and it's the foundation of this country, frankly. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that that it's true as well when it comes to gender. It's true for, for so many other um, identity classifications, I think race primarily. Um, but we see, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why 
Um, I think that the fight for LGBTQ equality is so inextricably linked with the fight for gender equality because so much of the challenges that LGBTQ people are facing are based in the gendered norms and gender stereotypes that we have and the institutions we've created to perpetuate our out, certainly outdated um, understandings of gender. Yeah, uh, Margaret brings up a great point, and I think I'm... We're going to have to go there. We'll see where the conversation lies because Margaret brings up sort of like understanding what privilege is and sort of not taking it personally, but trying to see sort of how the the structure is, how the architecture is, is working. Um, I did not read the foreword to your book. S Susan uh, did read the foreword to the book. Um <clears throat> So the foreword to the book, if anybody doesn't know, is written by by uh, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., who is running for president, apparently. Um, so the thing that I want to bring up, and I've sort of struggled with the way to bring it up, mm -hmm. but to your great um, – you were very clear in the book about your privilege and where you grew up and sort of the support you had. Mm hmm who you knew. Mm -hmm. And so when you were presented with this, um, with this thing in your life, you had sort of people to go to. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether, I wonder how you feel about it now, if several years on. I mean, you, you, like I said, to, you, 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 you bring it up in the book. You, you don't skirt the issue one bit. Mm -hmm. um, but, how do you feel about that now and going forward? Um, and we can talk about other people specifically, but just in general, um, in general, having that background and being able to rely on those people where other people may not be able to. Yeah, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a very good question. Um, I know that the life experiences I have and have had and the circumstances I was born into um, absolutely contributed to one, the experiences I've had, but also they've contributed to my ability to make some change in, in some of the ways that I've been able to make change. And I, and I don't deny that in the least. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's been my goal one of the goals that I've had since coming out is try to utilize the privileges that I have to subvert the power of prejudice and to make change um, to, you know, the reality is, is that LGBTQ equality has moved forward in large part because LGBTQ people organically exist throughout society. And therefore they know people in all avenues of society from all different backgrounds. I think, you know, one of the big questions is how do we replicate that phenomenon on issues where physical and geographic segregation exist around class and race. But there's no question that a byproduct has been a, a, a byproduct of the fact that we exist organically is that our relationships, whether it's familial relationships, friendships, professional connections, have contributed to change on LGBTQ equality, change in hearts, change in minds, and changes in laws. So I don't deny it. You know, I think. I try to recognize that, you know, the relationships that I have and the opportunities that I've been given provide a responsibility for me to try to push folks that I am friends with or folks that I have connections with to try to do better or to have more inclusive positions on a whole host of issues. Um, sometimes I probably navigate that space better than other times. Um, but I, I, I think your question is right. I think it's absolutely a factor in my life and in the change that's happened. I think that's been, in many cases, the reality across the board in this movement. Yeah. And again, to your great credit, it's not that you don't met you, you're it's I feel like it's it's integral to the book. I mean, you you, you talk about the, the, the connections that you've had. You talk about the access that you've had. So to your to your credit. You, you certainly integrate that into the whole into the whole story um, and you've been able to sort of parlay that into you know as I would put it uh, into like sort of insinuating yourself into some positions of power which I'm very very happy about um, uh, 
But I, I, I just wonder. Well, I would say you're probably better at it than I am, because well, I, I, I have difficult. I have, I actually have difficulty navigating that that water. Um, and I wonder, I, I wonder uh, what your uh, look, what your outlook on it, because you're you're navigating that water in the in the. You're you're in the heavy seas. I mean, you're you're right there, sort of on the cusp between, uh, you know, uh, near Tandon and and, <laughs> and radicalism. I mean, but between the two ends, I'm trying to th- just trying yeah, to think no, of two ends of the spectrum I, somehow. I mean, I think I think there'd be people who say the fact that I'm I'm able to navigate that suggests I'm not doing a good job. So uh, you know, I I I I my approach to advocacy is that. And, and people will disagree with this, but that I think we need every pressure point to effectuate change, that you have to have the people who can go in and close the deal. You have to have the people who can sit across a conference room table and and hash out the details in a way where maybe the legislators or whomever you're advocating to can sort of feel feel like they can catch their breath in the conversation. And you need people outside that conference room marching and protesting you need people who are more aggressive in their tactics you need the direct action and only when you sort of have all aspects of uh, of strategies utilized will the change occur i think you know every successful movement has had the folks who can go in and you know close the deal and you know make the speeches that maybe invite your uh your more sort of moderate and or undecided person in and you need the folks who are saying damn it none of this is enough and you have to move faster and you have to do more you i think you sort of need all aspects of 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 um a movement in order to achieve change now some folks would say the mere fact that you're willing to go into those rooms the mere fact that you're willing to talk a language that reaches folks where they are undermines the ultimate goals because you're giving people an out and so I'm sort of trying to go about making change the best I can using the best strategies I can. But I am fully aware of the fact that there are critiques of the way I approach things. And and I respect those. And I try to heed the the critiques and and the other approaches. And I certainly try to respect the different strategies because I think they're all necessary. I think that's actually your your this is probably why you're good at your job. You're winning me over like that because yeah, I mean the critique that I get is I have no room for discussion. I have no uh, no room for sort of sitting at the table and closing the deal. Um, but I don't go as far as to what you're saying about sort of saying there's there's no there's no point to like if if you're um, if you're giving any space to folks who are willing to cut deals then. You're not doing anything. I don't. I, that 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 I don't believe. So I do see. I I do see the the strategy in what you're in what you're saying. Yeah, and you know, I think that that there is the reality for me is I I do think that by definition politics has to include both both base base mobilization and public persuasion because at the end of the day if. I was only willing to stand with people who were perfect from the start. I'd have no one to stand with. And, and so I think for me, and I get why people might not be, you know, as patient as I am, um, because people shouldn't have to be patient, be patient with basic dignity and their basic rights. But I'm willing to say, as long as people are, are willing to demonstrate growth, I'm willing to extend grace. That's, that's fair. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, just, that's please. I think both very profound. I think something me and Rob can agree we both admire a lot. And I think what I particularly admire is I think your perspective and recognition that like, you know, like we kind of need everyone. We need the people who. And I think that that pinpoints something really important in that like, no advocate or protester or like whoever viewpoint for advocating for something should have to be a certain way. I think there's a lot of debate about that of like you should be more accepting of change or you should stand by this more and like not talk to XYZ people because that portrays something. And I think there's something so profoundly accepting and just wise about your viewpoint that like we we need all of that because 
that's the only way we kind of can, can like push the conversation forward and have that sort of community and solidarity. Yeah, I, I, I think I I personally certainly think that that's what I've learned from other movements and from the movement that I've observed. Um, but again, I I also completely get why folks would would criticize my strategy, right? I, I have the luxury of saying all strategies matter. I also get why someone would criticize my strategy because at the end of the day, you know, there are so many different factors in my life that allow me to extend the grace or be more patient with folks that other people don't have for whom these issues, you know, one day more can be the difference between survival. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to make change and I'm constantly trying to evaluate and reflect on what are the best strategies. And like I said, sometimes I get it right and sometimes I get it wrong. Um, but I think hopefully, I think one of the challenges in the left is trying to figure out how we recognize the multiplicity of strategies and, and not get into this place of you're completely evil because you approach change this way. Um, because I think sometimes we do fall into that trap. Um, and I get it. Uh, but I, but I, I personally think it's important, but I'm also willing to take the, the criticism on the other end, um, because I can bear it and I can I can keep going. Yeah, I guess I think my my biggest critique would be something like <clears throat> do we have to count on the influence of Jack Markell and the Biden family to be able to do this? Because if that's if we're going to if 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 the idea is that the influence of the powerful and the influence of the oligarchy is going, we have to exploit that to be able to make progress. Or can we, because I, I don't know, I, I'm always very, I'm a, I'm a cynical sort of suspicious person. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you work with people, and this is in all due respect, I actually have a lot of respect for Jack Markell, not John Carney, I don't like John Carney, but Jack Markell I do. Um, if you have to rely on these folks uh, it's almost like, well, we have personal relationships, and they have the, they, the, there's just like a sense of largesse, and they'll hear you out because they know you or they know your parents or they know where you're from, and so it definitely is a strategy to exploit that. But I feel like that that may not get us where we need to go. Well, I I, I wouldn't necessarily use the word exploit, and and you know. I I personally think Jack is a great guy, even if I, you know, agree with a lot of the things he does and disagree with some of the things, some of the policies that he supports. You know, every no one is agrees with everyone on every issue. Um, I think Bo is was a great person as well, and and I think for me, I approach a lot of change in, in that I do think that most people are good people. I, I genuinely do think that if that most people, when presented with the enough information and enough exposure, that most people will come to the to what I believe is the right conclusion. Um, and and I and I get why people are more cynical about others than that. Um, but I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in other people's lives. I've seen it in in these conversations in these movements. And so I think that that there's inherent goodness in in pretty much everyone. Um, when it comes to sort of utilizing the levers of power and engaging with elected officials, I mean, I'm not quite sure what the alternative is because I, I, I do believe that public policy isn't a panacea, but public policy can create the space for people to survive, meet their needs in order to advocate for more substantial transformational change. And at the end of the day, if I'm saying, okay, well, I need to pass legislation that protects transgender people from discrimination, I can assure you we would have never passed that legislation if not for the support of many elected officials, um, whether that's statewide elected officials or the state legislators that voted for it. And so I'm not quite sure what the alternative would be, but to work with people that have varying political positions because at the end of the day 
again, if, if, if I require someone to be perfect on everything and perfect from the start, I'm not going to have anyone stand with me. And I think that the challenge is how do we hold people accountable? And I think this is a broader question. How do we hold people accountable for positions that we think are wrong while also recognizing that to achieve any kind of legislative change, you have to create majoritarian coalitions that will inherently include people who have different positions on other issues than the specific bill in question. And how do you balance those two needs of accountability while also recognizing that you're just going to have to work with people who don't agree with you on every single issue? Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I mean, I'm a, a, we've talked about different types of strategy with, in a bunch of different shows and, you know, you sort of bite the bullet <clears throat> and you're like, man, I don't really like doing this, but this is what I need. You know, we, we, we need to make these, um, make these alliances. We need to, you know, we, we need to, we need to build solidarity and not everyone's going to be playing by the exact same rules that we're playing by. I think that's perfectly, perfectly right. Um, I, I guess my, what sticks in my crawl is the idea that people don't really get called out um, because they have, uh, because we can work with them on a particular issue, like you're mm -hmm. saying, like uh, these people aren't perfect. So um, I need to work with them on this issue. I think it's important and we do that. But for some reason then, once we do that, all the other issues, all of their other sort of positions on other things that are ancillary and are sort of like, well, you know, she helped us with, with this particular thing. Mm -hmm. So this is a good candidate. Or he was really, he stood behind this position when I lobbied. So this is a good person where I look at it more as I take the, I take the sort of the personal out of it. And I'll, I'll say, okay, um, you know, someone might've helped me, <clears throat> Uh, and with this issue that really meant a lot to me or that I lobbied very hard for or that I, I organized people behind, uh, and I'm glad that they did that. But generally, this person is trash. I mean, to let, to, to be, to let, to, I mean, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but that's the, that's the difference is a year from now or six months from now or three years from now, the fact that this person helped me, if they're not helping me again or all of their other positions are actually... Um, just they're indefensible or they're work they're counter to what we're tr to the to the project that we're trying to do um i think there's too much reverence or too much uh you sort of genuflect in the in the in the sight of these people because they've helped uh someone with one or two things yeah i i think that's a completely fair critique and i think that's a completely fair point and i think that that there's no question that you can that that personal loyalty can be held as such an uh, an esteemed virtue that it ends up hurting other principles or or or, or being it leads to people sort of turn and saying well they've 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 done this they've done this i don't, I don't mean it to be a favor it's not a favor it's yeah. political it's it's political it's wielding political power and pressing political buttons it's not a personal favor <clears throat> however because they've made this decision or they've pushed this button or pulled this lever for things that i really believed in then this is an ally. They're not an ally. You use them for this, and you have to use them again. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of ass kissing where I don't think it's warranted. <clears throat> I, Do you know what I mean? I, I completely understand what you mean, and I and I completely know what you mean. I mean, I I think that even though that can happen in excess, I think for me at least the reality is is that a lot of times. At least I've seen, and and again I can I agree that this can go too far, but that being kind and demonstrating gratitude and and you know saying you know if you've stood with me I'm going to help stand with you I, that those things can grease the wheels of change that that if we have a complete breakdown of sort of personal loyalty and and this notion of sort of uh, this action is going to be viewed by me completely in a vacuum and only in the context of this action and in no other way. I actually think that the wheels of government would grind to a complete halt, even more so than they already have. I was going to say, how, even how, more it's so, get worse even than more it is? so. And it's going to be hard to create those majoritarian coalitions because I think you have to have some level of trust and 
personal connection for those types of coalitions to form and, and, and sustain, particularly when the going gets tough on a particular legislative fight. So feel me out on this. What, what, my position would be a little bit different than yours. My position would be if somebody helped me do a, you know, pull a lever of power to do a certain thing, but they're, they're generally weak. I would say the next thing I have to do is remove them from any kind of political power as quickly as possible. Do you know what I mean? It's not sort of like to build, it's not to build a relationship with them over time so maybe in 10 years they can help me again. It's to retire them to the pasture as soon as possible. So if they're not helping me any further, they got to get the fuck out of the way. That's, and again, I'm not sure if that's right, but I think that that's the... That's the alternative. That's the part that I, I have trouble sort of uh, rectifying yeah. in my mind. I, I, I get that, and I, and I don't think that that's wrong, and I think that that's a completely valid perspective. You know, I think what is, how are they going to help me in the future is, is, is sort of a nuanced question in terms of when are you coming back, what, what other issues are you working on, what other pieces of legislation are you going to try to achieve in advance. You know, I also think that I, as I've said, I, I think most people are, are good people, and I think that people can be brought along particularly through personal relationships, um, and, and, and I think there's multiple ways of accountability. I mean, I do think that there are ways of putting pressure on people in, 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 with various methods, whether it's a conversation with them that's forceful directly with them, whether it's a public call out. And I think both can work depending on the circumstance. And I think, you know, for me, going from zero to 100 might be the right strategy, but some circumstances it might be a counterproductive strategy. It might be a strategy that ends up backfiring on my ability to not just achieve, to achieve change on the, 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 the issues that I'm working on on a day-to-day -day basis, but also to achieve change on the issues that I'm trying to stand in solidarity on as well. No, I, I I feel that, and <clears throat> yeah, it's very difficult for me to to, uh, to 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 be strategic all the time. So that's why I'm always looking for sort of advice. Um, I've had a bunch of people in here trying to give me advice on the, on the same kind of thing. I mean, I I think I, I think that these are the these are the most difficult questions in politics because they're they're based on circumstance less than fact and and statistics facts and statistics or you know what is the morally right or wrong policy these are questions of you know choose your own adventure you, it's it's hard to predict how humans will respond to various strategies yeah i'm so glad you said that cuz one of the things that uh, gets brought up in here a lot because i'm a big i'm a big proponent in like logic doesn't matter not that it doesn't matter but like <laughs> people look at a lot of these issues whether they be sort of social cult or cultural issues economic issues as like a math problem mm -hmm. well if you lay out these arguments and you show people these numbers and that they, that they work out this way then then you have a solid argument uh it's not math like it's not calculus um, there's there's a lot more to it that's that's very personal and uh, and emotional and, and and whatever it is. So I I am when I, I do have that idea in my mind. So when you explain that, it does make sense to me because it's more than just a a, a calculation, a cold calculation. You know? Right. Well, and it and it's and and I I just on a side note, I think you're absolutely right that politics is much more about emotion than it is about logic yeah um and that's true when it comes to policy and it's true when it comes to strategy um but you know I, there are i'm i'm fully willing to admit that i may very well be very wrong on my street i think i am 100 percent right on my policies but i am i am absolutely willing to admit that i may be wrong on my strategies um and 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 i and i want to be held accountable for that i think that's part of my job um, but I'm sort of trying to do the best I can and figuring it out. And, and, you know, I, I am to the, to the point you made around sort of getting in the room and, 
you know, pulling the levers of power and, and leveraging power to make change. I do believe that at the end of the day, if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. And I do believe that, you know, I have a responsibility for the different communities, multiple communities that I'm trying to fight for to make sure that my voice is heard at that table. And I will also fully admit that the I that I'm also carrying an extra nuance that is difficult is that I'm a trans person in politics and in advocacy. And I have to be mindful about how, you know, if I say something a certain way, it will be heard very differently than if you say it a certain way or you say it, anyone says it, we all are heard differently. And that's another nuance that I'm, that I try to try to figure out, which is how do I make sure that I am ensuring that my community's needs are heard at the table? Because at this point there are no openly LGBTQ members of the Delaware legislature. We have no openly LGBTQ statewide elected officials. There are no trans people in Congress. Most state legislators have legislatures have zero trans people. And so I have to figure out too, how do I have my voice heard in the space that it needs to be heard when the system has been structured in a way that for hundreds of years, my voice has never been present and it's now barely present. And I think that's, again, I think anyone who holds a marginalized identity, not to mention one that is, you know, like as marginalized as being a trans person, particularly a trans woman, like being in a space that is, um, like you said, structured to not address the kind of person you are. I think like, for instance, like being a woman or being a racial minority, like you're always aware of like, I have to be aware of how my identity and what I, the, what I say and express will inevitably shape each other like there, there's for instance there, there's sometimes even a privilege to be able to say like whatever you want and not having to like right. worry about that per se depending what kind of spaces you're in um and I, I think that's um a both a burden and responsibility that it's so evident that you carry in your work and is I say admirable a lot I'm, I'm very aware in this podcast so far but I'm gonna continue saying it because you're a very admirable person um I, I think it's something I, I want to kind of like emphasize that is very important in all of your work is that I think you are so nuanced and complex. And I think of talking about how you hold kind of like privileges and also very marginalized identities and the responsibility on one hand and kind of, you know, the importance of you being present on the other hand because of your more marginalized identities in combination with certain privileges you hold. Um, and I think we opened this podcast with talking about some of those privileges because I think it's a very rare and incredibly important thing to be able to be comfortable with the privileges you hold and like you said use those responsibilities I think that's incredible and I think something we should foster in more and more people instead of it being a discomfort um but at the same time I think it should be widely recognized also that you have overcome massive challenges in just your daily I think presence as a trans person and that is to hold also I think the advocacy that you do as well and be so effective at it is just kind of a you're amazing. That's basically well, the underlining conclusion you. of that rant. I mean, I mean and, and, and Margaret, I think to to that to your point too, I and to, to to the comment that I that that I was making, I think that should what we just talked about, which is so real, should be a call to arms to those with privilege to recognize that you can those with privilege can say the harder truths that will not be heard if they are said by the person who is at the at the center of that conversation which is really sad that that's the reality but it is true that therefore allies have a unique responsibility because they can say things in a way that's more forceful that's more that's more blunt that's more aggressive and it will be heard and more heard more likely in a positive way or a productive way than if I'm the one that says it, I felt I, I I felt like you were talking about me until you said it was it was heard in a productive way. <laughs> and I was like ah, I, I was like I do that every I do that. Ah, everybody hates my guts. So I have an interesting idea maybe to pitch this moment because I think that was a good segue. Um, because I saw this tweet the other day and it piqued my interest and it was someone making the argument that allyship quote unquote doesn't exist. Mm. 
and their argument was that, and at first I heard that and I was like, ah, like, like baseline. I was like, I don't know if I agree with that. And they read their reasoning further. And their reasoning was that, um, there is no good allies. There's only good advocates. Like if you're being an effective ally, you should be truthfully and responsibly advocating for the issues that you may not embody or experience yourself. And I thought it was an interesting argument because I, I think I understood that line of reasoning and I understand, I think sometimes there are a lot of conversations that are people like needing to prove themselves as allies mm-hmm. and marginalized communities being like, well, just, you know, listen to us and be faithful to us and like advocate properly for those. So I guess I was curious, I think to both of you, what your thoughts are kind of about like, does allyship exist or is it just good advocacy and like maybe the usefulness of that term? Because I think what you described is now in that like maybe interaction of having someone with more privilege, like speaking to things that someone couldn't say if they're from a more marginalized background kind of, I think plays into that argument interestingly. Yeah, I, I, yes, I I agree. And I think that, you know, I use the term ally because it's the most accessible term for people. Mm-hmm. People know what that means. Um, but I think the critique of our sort of how op- allyship is operationalized in our society is a legitimate and accurate critique, which is that people end up, when I say allyship isn't, isn't declared, it's bestowed. So the community has to be the one that says, you're an ally. You can't be like, I'm an ally, I'm an ally, I'm an ally. Two, allyship is so often worn as a cloak to shield people from critique or feedback or growth. I'm an ally. I'm your supporter. I'm an ally. I, I, I didn't mean it. Right? And recognizing that intentions aren't necessarily the beginning and the end of the conversation. Intentions are important, but that they don't necessarily mitigate harm. And that allies have to be open for critique. So I think whether we call them allies, whether we call them advocates, sometimes people say the word accomplice, like regardless of the word we're using, I think we do have to recognize that the way allyship so often materializes is a sort of self-proclamation of granting oneself a cookie and then shielding oneself for, from feedback for growth. Um, And I think we have to push back on that. I think we have to make clear that that's not allyship, that allyship requires listening to your point. Allyship requires a willingness to be critiqued or offered feedback. Um, Allyship requires putting something on the line. Oftentimes that's our own comfort. Um, And oftentimes that's in small contexts of just saying to a person, hey, that comment wasn't okay or that joke wasn't okay even if it makes the circumstance uncomfortable. Um, but I think that critique is le- is completely legit. And I think that it's it's something that I, I see more and more conversation around because I think so often we fall into this sort of false sense of, of goodness um, around self-proclaimed allyship. Yeah, and that's probably one of the reasons that I uh, am, I don't know, I find myself falling into sort of the extreme sort of uh tr- getting in trouble and and being loud and being uh, you know non-apologetic is because i have no there's literally no other thing <laughs> you know i i have i'm i'm the privileged i'm I, i've never really had and this is I mean, this is not new information for everyone but <laughs> like are you coming out right now is yeah that- <laughs> i'm coming out i'm yeah can you imagine <laughs> Christ Almighty, uh, yeah. Like my, I mean, all things considered, when you look at the the, the political uh, environment, and you look at the economic environment and the culture. I, I'm on Easy Street, so I feel like because on that sort of scale, I'm where I am. That maybe I need to be the person on the other side who really, really pushes buttons. Do you know what right. I mean? Absolutely. You need the gadfly. You need you need the person who's willing to to go in and make people uncomfortable. I I, I yeah. We that's we started talking about good trouble at the before the podcast started, right? Yeah. We need people who are I mean, all of us are hopefully making good trouble, but we need folks who make good trouble in a more aggressive way that makes people uncomfortable and 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 speaks truth to power and all of those things. And that's again why I think every pressure point is needed and and you know whether i'm on the receiving end of that pressure or on the extending end of that pressure i think it's necessary yeah i mean i've I, and it's funny that you use those words because i've just in in political conversation before whether it be with just local organizers or people doing campaigns 
you know, you sort of fight everywhere. You fight everywhere wherever you can. You know, you fight in Sussex County for a, for a House seat. You fight for a U.S. Senate seat. You fight for a school board referendum. You fight wherever. And so, yeah, you really need to press everywhere um, so you can – so w- when you – when you, you never know it, which door you will You never open. know. You never know when the crowd I, – I told somebody um, weeks ago, I said, you know, my job isn't like that. My job is to smash against the wall and, 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 and develop cracks, and then people just exploit those cracks. And whichever one they go through, that's fine by mm-hmm. me. But I'll, I'll, I have no problem running against the wall first because, again, my, I'm a privileged person. So if I need to go into the wall first and smash up against it, that's fucking fine by me. And then just to do whatever else you need to do to get through whatever crack you need to get through. Because a lot of the things that I see today are, are untenable. Like we can't go on this way, whether it's cultural stuff, whether it's economic stuff. Um, you know, uh, a lot of these people are trying to kill us. Well, and, and, I think, and I think we have to continue to move in a direction where we, where we better understand, better articulate the fact that there isn't this dichotomy in our politics between social issues and economic issues. That that is a false distinction. Because the reality is you cannot have equality for all if you have an economy that works for only the wealthy few, but you also can't have an economy that works for everyone if even one person is kept out of a job because of prejudice or discrimination. And so recognizing that these issues are inextricably linked, I think we have to move in that direction. I think as progressives, as leftists, as Democrats, what, however you identify in that left side of the political spectrum, I think we have to do a better job of articulating that these issues are inextricably linked, not just for ourselves, but for other voters who may, uh, you know, I was listening to, I hate to admit this, I was listening to a 538 podcast. And oh, come on. I know, I, I've just. Are I, you going to give us some fucking Nate Silver propaganda? No, no. I no. love the preface of like, I'm sorry. Uh, I, as but, soon as you said that, I could see in your face, I'm like, this is going to be bad. No, I know, I know. It's not going to be, it's it's not going to, it hopefully won't be conventional wisdom BS. <laughs> Dude, but, Carl, Carl just fainted. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, by the way, I'm like kind of starstruck being in the room with Delaware's best tweeter in Carl. So <laughs> you literally have the best Twitter. Um, you know, I. K Foster at K Foster Stomp. Yes. Stomberg. Yes. S T O M B E R G. If you're not following it, you're missing out. Well, I completely lost my train of thought. Like, anyway, on what you I was listen thinking. to Nate Silver. Oh, podcast. Nate Silver. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we were mocking so, you for the, for the yeah, Nate no, Silver podcast. Completely warranted. Um, but he was talking about how uh, the most the, there's this narrative that there are a time around the um, oh my gosh the CEO of Starbucks what Howard Schultz Howard thank you around the Howard Schultz convo there's this false notion that there's this like massive population of socially liberal fiscally conservative voters. Um, and they were looking at sort of the statistics and they were saying that that group is dramatically overestimated, largely because they're small concentrate concentrates in, in urban settings. The reality is, is, is one of the most sort of ignored, n- non sort of ideologically homogeneous voter is the socially conservative, fiscally liberal voter. And I think for those folks, we have to do this better, a better job of really articulating that these issues are inextricably linked. That's that's fascinating because one of the one of the ways I would describe sort of the folks in Delaware who we've relied on for pretty much any kind of political power, uh, whether it be the Bidens or Markel or uh, whoever, Coon, Chris Coons or whoever, is that um, sort of socially liberal fiscal. So it's like as long as taxes are low, we cut. We have austerity. I will be happy to uh, officiate, a, a, you know, a, a same-sex wedding. I would be happy to, uh, you know, f- argue for whatever sort of social uh, issue you have. That makes sense to me, as long as the banks make lots of money, the taxes are low, um, and you know we can squeeze. We we have this austerity issue where we can just squeeze the schools we can squeeze healthcare, and we can squeeze everything else i would love to turn that on its head i would love i would love that but i i i think though on the flip side that i think something that i see 
on the left in Delaware, though, is the what feels like the diminishing of issues that are deemed social issues and this blaming of folks who are advocating or fighting for their rights based on their sort of non-class-based identities as sort of at fault for giving cover to policies that are more moderate on economic policies. And I, and I think that's, again, I think that's a byproduct of this false distinction where which allows people to deprioritize and de-emphasize and almost and minimize the issues we deem as social issues. And so I, I also think on the left in Delaware, people have have gone about trying to push forward more progressive economic policies in a way that I think has alienate that has the potential to alienate folks of color, LGBTQ folks, a lot of women, people with disabilities, because we're we're sort of almost being blamed in some of the discourse for the this notion that 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 our politicians are using us as cover to take more moderate economic positions and and so i think i i really i think there has to be an adjustment in the discourse um because i think that too often happens too yeah i mean i certainly i i i would never describe it as sort of using somebody as political cover i i'm not sure that that's exactly what's going on but i certainly think that um i'll I'll be pointed and then you can say what you'd like um i know within the last couple of weeks you made a comment to the blaze in in washington about joe biden the blade the blade i'm sorry excuse me pardon me I think the Blaze is a conservative outlet. I think it's, I think you're right. I, I, I like apologize. Really? Yeah, yeah. When I said it, I'm like, that's. I don't think that's, that's right. Not right. That's not right. Um, about Joe Biden and, and and that he, for a period of time, has been, uh, you know, uh, someone who has has uh, spoken for and spoken out for social LGBTQ rights. However, he is a good example. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to accuse him of using those social issues as cover, but he certainly is not an economic populist. I mean, he, he he's, he's not in favor of Medicare for all. He has a record of, you know, uh, making sure that the banks make all the money they can possibly make, whether it's the repeal of Glass-Steagall or making bankruptcy more difficult or even NAFTA or the TPP. So uh, how would you describe that? Like, I, so <clears throat> I understand you sort of reject that dichotomy, and I, I sort of kind of reject it too. But in, in, in that case, particularly, or you know, any other case you could name, how, how, how would you describe it if you reject? Sort of I mean, I, 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 I acknowledge that there can be a, that there's, in reality, a distinction in terms of how people vote or how people. You know that 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 there are going to be people who are liberal on social issues and more moderate on economic issues. I don't deny that that becomes a reality. I'm talking about how we articulate the need for being progressive on economic issues and social issues. My 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 point is more around a rhetorical and 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 public persuasion element rather than a denial of the fact that there are people who are socially conservative and and fiscally liberal or fiscally liberal and socially or fiscally conservative and socially liberal I, I don't disagree that that's a reality um and and, and you know I, like I said before I think it's sort of one maybe in having the luxury of knowing these people I can recognize that I might not agree with every position they have there may be a number of positions I disagree with, but that I see the goodness in them. I'm willing to work with them. I see the evolution in them. Um, you know, I, I think that, I do think that the reality is, is we have seen, not enough, but a move to the left in the Democratic Party in Delaware for a multitude of reasons. Jack Markell was more progressive than previous Democratic governors on a number of issues. I, I, you know, would hope that future governors 
continue future governors become more and more progressive if i, I think if you're I may, seeing the state if, legislature if may, if, become if more just, if i may just say this you you skip the current governor which i would say went the other way because i will agree with you i mean and i don't and i don't know i mean obviously you have a, a personal relationship with him and and in retrospect compared to carney uh jack markell was i mean like approaching fdr but but I but I don't know. This is and this is another conversation we've had in here a lot. Like at the state level, um, we still have, you know, maybe we've gone the other way from Jack Markell. I don't know if the if the if the state level. I don't I don't know. I think they might be further right or or at least not as interested in uh, pro progressive ideas or. Or, or, or taking a stand on something. They're a little more stagnant, status quo, maybe I would say. I, I think, and I listened to the, the podcast you had with, with Matt Albright, and, and I think you know both of you agree that, that we should be bolder and bigger in our policies. And I, I think that that's absolutely right. Um, I, I do think that there has been, though, a move to the left. I think you know whether we're talking about the fact that there's support, pretty wide support, among elected officials in Delaware for, now, unfortunately not enough, but wide support for adding a higher income bra income tax bracket. Um, I think you've seen a more forceful stance on gun violence prevention. I think you've seen a more forceful stance on criminal justice reform. I think you've seen a more forceful stance on, on you know, paid leave. Now, I think we there's a lot more to do and there's more space for us to become even bolder but I do think that we can't deny that we've moved to the left. Not enough, but we've moved to the left. And I think that's a byproduct of a lot of activists, a lot of advocates, a lot of volunteers, and some elected officials who have helped push the door open a little bit for the party to be more left than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Again, I think there's more room to grow, I think, but I, I you look at the Del Delaware Democratic Party platform, and it's a pretty darn progressive platform. I think, and I really like that the party is in a place where they're saying we're going to make sure that we're holding elected officials accountable for deviations from this progressive party platform. Yeah, I hope. So. I mean, I, 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 I don't, and this is another um, another issue that we've gone back and forth with here. Like how f how far left has it gone? How far left can we go? And how do you really judge that? Um, because certainly uh, on the on the guns, um, things are happening. That's that's good. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, I don't know what kind of impact those things are going to have, but they're definitely things that I support. Yeah. Um, because any any move in one in that direction is good. Um, I can tell you that uh, John Kowalko sat in your seat on Sunday. And I'm very interested to see what happens with those tax brackets. Mm -hmm. You know, we had we we had obviously mm -hmm. <laughs> with John here. We had a mm -hmm. very long conversation about that. And again, like it seems like people understand it conceptually, but months and months go by, and the, and a general assembly starts and finishes, and nothing happens. Yeah. Well, and I think the you know the the sad reality on on that issue is that so often it only happens when there's a need to close a budget hole and and a deficit and and that's not the situation we're in right now that shouldn't absolve us from doing it um but i think it certainly takes some of the wind out of the sails or some of the sense of urgency out of out of pushing that forward like i said i think we still have more room to to go i think the reality is is that delaware is one of a handful of states where democrats control everything and that's a unique position to be in, and it's a unique responsibility then that we have to be bigger and bolder in the kind of policies we put forward, not just for ourselves and each other, but for the country, to be a laboratory of democracy for, for, for new and, and bigger ideas. I, I mean, I, I hope so. The problem that I see with it is, is the simple fact that it's, it's democratic. There are certain... Um, soft points that we can apply pressure to and, and and try to get some movement but because of the financial uh, infrastructure and the architecture of this state it really isn't it, it really isn't 
Do you know what I mean? And so I, I, I'm. Maybe you can make me more hopeful. Well, I, I, I think I, I you tell me why I should be I mean, more hopeful. I, I think I, I do think sometimes we lose the forest for the trees, and, and I do think that there has been an undeniable um, move to the left on a number of excuse me a number of issues. By the way, it's incredibly on brand for um, to have the bubbly water here in the uh, Highlands. We love we love the we love the water with gas. Um, but <laughs> but uh, it, it's making it harder to talk a little bit. But. What so I was going to say, all, so I, it's all a big plan. Yeah. So I think that that there's one. There's no question in my mind that there are issues that are being either accomplished or very close to being accomplished that ten to fifteen years ago would have seemed impossible here in Delaware. And I don't think we should ignore that. I don't think we should diminish that. I think we should find hope and optimism in that. I think you you are right. That there are some broader structural issues in the way of other kinds of progress that we as a state have to figure out, which is how do we diversify our economy and diversify our revenue so that we aren't held. Um, uh, say know, hostage, say it. So, so that our state isn't limited in the kinds of policy <laughs> solutions. I tried to get her. That we, Folks, I tried to get her. That, Couldn't that, do it. That we can explore. Um, and I think that's a long-term conversation that the state needs to figure out of, of how do we make sure that, that we have more flexibility in our economy and in our revenue and in our policymaking. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the biggest problem I've had. And when you look at it, it's, it's, it, it, it appears unsustainable to me, just like every sort of – every capitalist enterprise like that where it's, it's so tilted, over time it's untenable. Like we can, we can't continue to to sort of do it this way. But, but I think that's a reality with every generation. That's I mean, pro- every every true. every generation has to make changes to their economy, to their government, to their policies to better meet the needs and the dynamics of the current moment. And and I think there's a broader reality right now that given the technological changes in this country, in the world, given the the the, the shifting from an industrial economy to a service-based economy, given the questions we have around how do we, in a society where where labor produces the ability to, to, to secure the goods and services you need at a point where there might be less jobs available than there are people who need them, what does it look like to give people the opportunity to, what does the future of work look like, you know, at a moment where all of these questions are at a sort of tipping point, we can have a second progressive era to rein in the excesses of new economies and new industries to answer the questions that are coming with automation and trade. And I think that that's an opportunity that should be seized, not something that we should shy away from or try to delay. I think um, Sarah just uh, coined the title of this episode. It's the second progressive era. That's what we're doing. Knocking I, on what, hopefully. I, I love it. I love it. So let's let before we before we cut off, let you, you mentioned about sort of labels, um, leftist progressive. So what, what do you consider yourself? What I, do you label yourself? I mean, I, not people. Some people don't, but I mean, you might have a you might be able. If somebody asked you, like, okay, well, what is your politics? What what do you say? I I I identify as a progressive. Okay. Um, I. I like what that says. I like the the sort of focus on action. Um, I like that our party is having more room for people who identify as leftists. I like that there's more room for a broader diversity of, of, of opinions. And I like that we're helping to move the Overton window further to the left so that ideas that seemed impossible a decade or two ago to people, at least politically, are now being seriously discussed and debated. And whether those are the final outcomes, whether those are the final policies that come out from the legislative process, I like that the conversation is moving to the left. And and for all of the crap that's happening at the national level, for all of the sort of structural issues we have in this moment, I do find hope and I do find optimism in the fact that I think in the long run, we're laying the foundation for a more inclusive, progressive state and nation. I like it. <laughs> I like it. Everyone, uh, we've, we've come to another close of this. Uh, I want to 
really thank Sarah for coming in because this is a big. It was a big week. We had. We had <laughs> thank you for having me. We, I mean, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, we had we did a, we did a short episode with Carrie, and we popped into the old bunker, and <laughs> Carrie was like, "I just saw Sarah McBride," and we were talking, and I told her I had to run because I'm doing a podcast, and she said, "Is it the bunker?" And I went, "Holy shit, Sarah McBride knows about the bunker." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, boom. All the big players yeah. in the house. Well, well, thanks for coming in. And as, as you are, um, uh, you know, a neighbor of ours, you, your door is always open. Thank you. I'm going to come by for that exposed brick. Nice. All right. Thanks, everybody. Left is best. <laughs> <laughs>